0: When it's a special occasion, when you should be your happiest, um, and Madeline's not there, that's when it really hits home.
1: Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com
2: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I I.com. com.
1: So.
0: Yes, I mean the family with their three children were in apartment G5A. This was on the edge of a sort of contained area which was known as the Ocean Club within which there was a tappers bar and swimming pools and tennis courts. But the actual apartments where they were staying was, was outside that perimeter area and it was effectively from front and back accessible to the public. The careful and critical analysis of the timeline has been absolutely key. Primarily, we are focused on the area between 8.30 and 10. We know that at 8.30, that was the time that Mr and Mrs McCann went down to the tapas area for their dinner. And we know that at around 10pm, that was when Mrs McCann found that Madeleine was missing.
3: Hello and welcome to Real Crime Profile. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer for CBS's Criminal Minds. With me today is
4: Laura Richards, criminal behavioral analyst, former head of the Homicide Prevention Unit at New Scotland Yard and founder of
0: Paladin National Stalking Advocacy Service. And I am Lisa Zambetti. I'm the casting director for CBS's Criminal Minds. I have a real interest in real crime and these minds that solve these crimes. So we are deep diving and we're continuing to deep dive
4: the disappearance of Madeleine McCann, who disappeared just one week short of her fourth birthday in Portugal on May the 3rd, 2007. Now, these cases, as our listeners, as you're following along, you will know that these cases are exceptionally rare and that when Jim and I cover these cases and and deep dive into them, we have to look at every potential scenario that may have happened to Madeline, And it should be no surprise to anyone, Kate and Jerry were made our guidos in this case by the Portuguese police. And more often in cases where children are young, you look to the parents and the family first of all, because it's about opportunity and access. And therefore, we will be covering that Particular hypothesis that Kate and Jerry had something to do with the disappearance of Madeline McCann, but we will also cover all the other possible scenarios as well, and break them down and talk about our thoughts and the facts and the evidence that support them.
0: Real quick question before we jump in: When we last when we last broke off, we were talking about the um, age-progressed photo of Madeline right now that's out there. How often do abducted children? recognize themselves in these photos that get put out by the media. I mean, is that likely that if she's out there, she's 16 years old, she might see this photo and have some questions about any number of things? I mean, does that happen?
3: Yeah, I think that is one of the reasons why documentary series, podcasts, radio shows, any kind of publicity about this, any way to get that information out to as broad an audience as possible, it should always be looked at as a positive thing, especially this far down the road.
4: Another interesting thing with the Stephen Stainer case, I mean, he didn't really have much recollection, did he, Jim, of where he came from? But I remember that he said, I remember my first name is Stephen. So he remembered the name that he'd been given by Parnell. That wasn't his real name, but he couldn't really remember much else. And of course, if children are abducted when they're young, they may just have some vague distant memories. So that Mm -hmm. can be a challenge. But yes, putting as much information out there as possible. I mean, there is another high-profile case, that of Ben Needham, who disappeared in Greece. I don't know if you remember this case, Jim, or had any um, involvement in it. It's a British case, again. Happened before Madeline. You don't recall it? I mean, there was very I little don't. interest in it, very little media. His mother still campaigns. And of course, there is that rawness of, well, why does Madeleine get all of this attention? But yet my boy who disappeared in the blink of an eye, he doesn't get any attention at all.
3: Right. Well, I think the most notorious case that I worked that brought all this into bear was the Sean Hornbeck Ben Ownby abductions. And Sean Hornbeck had been gone for more than four years when Ben Ownby was abducted. And it was a huge response in both cases. I think our tactics had improved in between and so forth. And luckily, there was a teenage boy who was very into cars, who really had an amazing description of the vehicle that drove down the street right before Ben Owenby was abducted. And that description led to determining what the tire treads were and so forth. And that car was seen out parked outside of a apartment complex. And when the police officers knocked on the door, I think a 16 or 17 year old boy answered the door and he said there was no issues involved here. You know, the police went on, but they made an incident report. And When that happened, as soon as that incident report came across our desks, I immediately like, oh my God, you need to kick in that door. Oh my God, go in there right now. Because the answers that this kid gave, they were absolutely red flags. Well, his grandmother was traveling and he didn't really know where. And that's why he was staying with his friend right now. And all these things that were so amorphous, I said, you need to get back in there. And Kathy Canning said exactly the same thing. And when they went back in, they not only found out that that, teenage boy was Sean Hornbeck, but that Ben Olenby was chained up in the back room. So it was a double find. And both of those kids were long beyond, one was four years and one was several days, long beyond the sort of cold statistics. And they were still alive. Again, I hope beyond hope that that's what happened here, that Madeline is still alive somewhere and that she can be rescued.
4: Well, jumping in and it's related to what you've just said, and a couple of our listeners have asked this question too. Now we talked about the fact that in the room the twins were also asleep there, Sean and Amelie. Yeah. Now they were just two years old and Madeline obviously coming up to her fourth birthday. The question posed is really why take Madeline when she's Older, would it not be easier to take one of the twins? If it were uh, about taking a a, a young girl, one that might be more malleable, wouldn't it make more sense to abduct Amelie rather than Madeline?
3: I think that this is a great area that we should explore because it could be that if the person had maternal desire and it wasn't a sexually motivated abduction, I would think it would have been more appropriate and easier to have abducted one of the twins. But that's not what happened. Why was Maddie the focus? And how, as gross and graphic as it is, the only two abduction scenarios that I can see, if Madeline was abducted by a stranger, one would be sexual and one would be monetary, trying to sell her to someone. So because of that, those two motives, I mean, it, it's, it's very grim. It's a horrible thing to think about. But now, that could be what happened.
0: Monetary yes, trafficking. trafficking. Not ransom, yes. which never... No,
3: no. Not ransom, but to to sell her into trafficking. Yeah. And to me, those are the only two viable motives that would cause someone to take her versus the younger girl that was in the same room. And, right. and much more easily to concealed, much more easily transported, much more amorphous in terms of the looks and so forth. So you could get an infant past a lot of screeners where you, getting a four-year-old past those same screeners would be much more difficult.
4: And not just the four-year-old, let's just think about Madeline specifically and her victimology. And we've talked about age progression, but Madeline had a very distinctive eye. And I have it too, actually, not to the degree that she does, or, or had it, where you can see it much more within her eye. But that, again, is something that is distinctive. And I know the Portuguese police talked about whether they should release pictures of her. Would it, If she had been taken, would that then panic somebody into doing something with her? But she had a distinctive mark. Amelie you know, didn't. There are those questions. We know that with trafficking, the, there are two-order sadly, catalogs where people can pick out the child that they want. There's all sorts of things on the dark web. And it is a possibility. It happens far more often than what people understand it happens. But she is very distinctive. And therefore, watching her and going after her creates a risk issue in and of itself of targeting this little girl who is distinctive, who stands out and therefore is not that easily moved across. And it's horrible talking about a little girl as a commodity, but unfortunately that is what happens. So that to me again, why Madeline? We know that she is the one that disappeared, but when there are two twins sleeping there, and it leads me into another point that the Portuguese police did seal off the room sometime later, but apparently the twins stayed sleeping in there and slept the entire time. (laughs) which yeah. again, it just seems bizarre to me. It's just a, a, another question mark and red flag. Why leave your children in that room? Why were they still asleep? When you would imagine that people are going in and out, there's a whole flurry, you know, the lights have gone on, there's people panicking and loud voices, but apparently they slept through the whole time, which yeah, but- seems very bizarre to me.
0: Doesn't seem bizarre to me at all as the mom of twins, especially if you, they've been all week in the sea and in the sun, and can definitely see them being dead to the world and want to keep them near you. Like like we were we were saying that we didn't want think these parents should leave their children alone, so they're being kept nearby to Kate and Jerry. But I've seen this happen where my kids were will, will just out after a day at the beach of uh, six days being out in the sea and sun and, and all those activities, just being out dead to the world while there's a lot of commotion around you. It's not unusual, especially if they're used to having a little sister around who's probably not quiet when they're sleeping anyway. They might be used to a certain amount of din. But as a mom, I know there are a lot of moms out there that we, we've we've had this experience where we can't believe we there's gonna be an earthquake here in California and my kids slept <laughs> through the whole thing, people, things falling off the walls. So it can happen. But, I get that part. Uh, yeah, Leaving
4: I, them in the room where a child is abducted. Yeah, exactly. Tape, no, exactly. I'm sorry. I, you just wouldn't.
3: Not That's immediately and certainly not after the police arrive. I mean, did you hear, Laura, at all, that they went in and swabbed their bodies for DNA uh, uh, to see if that is it, or collect their clothing and their bedding? And uh, did they do any of that? I, I don't hear no, anything like that. And that would be the only reason you would leave them in that room. Why? Why would you keep them in a place that you are saying, as a parent, you are saying, someone has violated our space, and yet I'm leaving my two most vulnerable children in that same space. Why? It just, it it does raise some red flags. But so they weren't
0: removed I don't from the room? I, I don't I know. That. They apparently they
4: slept through. And a number of officers and people commented on it of how, what if all three of them had been drugged? What if, why did the twins stay asleep? That's one thing. But the police commented on it or Gonzalo Amaral, because he basically said when they arrived, the window had been shut and the shutters were down but the children were still sleeping in there. But he wanted it preserved. He wanted the shutters to remain open. He wanted the windows still open because of course you don't want anything touched. But it just raised the question to me, that we know that she didn't sweep, Kate didn't sweep them up when she originally went back down to the pool, but to leave them there sleeping, not put them in her bedroom or- Oh yeah, that that seems weird. That seems really (laughs)
5: weird, yeah.
4: Strange. Yeah.
2: And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
3: When the investigation began, hours had already passed. I don't know if seven, eight, and this is enough for evidence to vanish. If she was abducted in those six, seven hours, they had time to take her to Spain or put her in a plane or in a boat. so also you mentioned the shutters and this is a point that i keep hearing questions raised about and uh, they did a reenactment later with another officer and so forth private investigator a retired police officer and he said something that you couldn't take a child out the window because you would have to be holding up the shutters and Turning your body to in order to get out while you're carrying this child. But I have to say that that's absolutely absurd. Because clearly, if the shutters blocked that window, there has to be a way to roll it up and keep it up. I mean, it's not it's not meant to stay down the whole time. You don't open your window and leave the shutter closed. You open the shutter when you open the window so a breeze can come in. It's absurd to think that somebody couldn't open it and leave it open. It doesn't always come down on you. Otherwise, it would be ridiculous. Why would you have a window if you couldn't actually get air through that space?
4: Well, unless it was 40 at that time. But it is, it's a good question as to was, were they talk. I think it was McLeod or someone, wasn't it, who was saying that the shutters wouldn't remain up but is it that they were 40 at the time and therefore what he was saying, was he testing the the same shutters? Because again, that wasn't clear to me. Was it their shutters or was it just another apartment that was similar? Right. That wasn't clear either. So, th- So the context of it is problematic.
3: Right, but, but I think that we also have heard that they did have that window and shutters open at times and that it wasn't something that was just always remained down. When you're doing a recreation or an, or an experiment to determine whether something is viable. You have to make sure you know what the original parameters are. You can't simply just make them up out of whole cloth. And that's really important.
4: Remember that, Kate, the reports that went back to her dad and to others was that the shutters had been gemmied and that they had been broken and that's how someone got in. And that was all in the British press as well. Right. And so the question was that when we saw pictures of the shutters, Um, from the official police reports, they didn't look like they had been jemmied and they didn't look like they had been broken to get entry. But of course, the wider question is, well, why not just go through the door if the door's open?
3: Right. So I think, obviously, that could be speculation on the part of Kate and Jerry. It, It could be complete speculation. It could also be a game of telephone. In other words, they say one thing and then the person on the telephone says another thing, and that's what gets reported to the press. But... In terms of probabilities, I would think that if somebody was watching this unit, which I think they would have had to have been doing in order to pick the right time to get Madeline, they would have seen people going in and out through that unlocked gate, exterior gate, and the unlocked sliding glass door into the unit. And so I think that would be the most probable location to gain entry. There's no reason to be messing with a shutter or a window that could be closed. You'd go right to the place where you know people are going in and out. But if what happened was they were in the apartment, if an abductor were in the apartment, having gotten in through that gate and that sliding glass door, and then one of the other parents came in to look and they were actually hiding while this parent did a cursory look to see if the kids were there, that would be a reason why they might not want to go back out the back door but actually exit through that window. And to me, that window is much more likely an exit point than it is an entry point. And that may also be why it was left open because if you were coming in and didn't want people to know you were in their place, in other words, you're committing a burglary. If you break into a window or, or a door, you don't leave that door window open while you're in the place because That's an indication that somebody's in there, right? So what you do is you cover your tracks. But if you exit that way and you're exiting with the child, you would want to get away from there as soon as possible and not spend time closing windows and closing gates or shutters. So that, in my mind, the more probable scenario is that entry was made through that sliding glass door and not that window that was shuttered.
4: Well, we have to remember it was Kate that made the comments about the window, and therefore the window was open, therefore she knew Madeline had been taken. That was her initial statement, hearing the window being open, the shutters, and it was she that said to her father when she called him that they had been jemmied. So that's out right, of her, her she, mouth. Right,
3: I know, but, but she's not... Not an expert. She, she knows nothing about child abduction. She has noticed nothing about burglary. She she has no basis of knowledge for this. It was her speculation at that point. Now, that's that's the innocent version. The non innocent version is that it was staged. And so she meant to say that. I don't know. Basically, we don't know what actually what of those two things are likely what occurred. That's all we know.
4: That's right, but it's important to go back to what her first account was because things have changed over time. And the second point I just wanted to to raise was that I believe that no one cited Maddie. Even when they said that people went in to do these checks, I don't believe that any one of them said they had seen Maddie. When they were going back, they cited the twins, but they didn't see Maddie. So a question for me, and a number of our listeners have also raised it, is when was the, the final sighting of Madeline? Not right the was, Tappas, yeah, mm-hmm. seven, not Jerry and Kate, but who was last to see Madeline alive and where?
0: That's a great that's a great point.
3: A yeah. Great point. Uh, I know, and that's what should have been done immediately. It's critically important to know the window of opportunity precisely. Law enforcement should have made that first priority. Then the next priority is getting out and doing a, a comprehensive search of all child-sized containers in the immediate area, expanding out further and further for as long as necessary until that child is located. And again, those things were not done. Neither of those things were done. Question.
0: When you do that, when you draw a concentric circle thinking, okay, how far could somebody, if somebody has her gotten away in a car by now, do you start at that farthest circle and move in. Because
3: I know what you're saying. What you do is you try to lock down those those methods of egress, a way of escaping. You try to lock down the, the local highway. You put a roadblock here. You put a roadblock there. You make sure that you have everybody who's going in and out. You document. We give them roadblock canvas sheets so that they, everybody takes down the same amount of information. Not only were you here today, driving today? Do you come by here every day at this time? Do you come by here every week at this time? So we know the pattern. So then if we find out that the person who abducted Maddie was actually somebody who was stalking them, then somebody who was there last week at that same time might've seen them or the day before at that same time. So there are a number of reasons why we do it. I do understand that they did put up a roadblock at, at one of the major exits from the town, but apparently from what, the documentary series showed that roadblock was not very comprehensive and they put it up late and they weren't comprehensive in who they stopped and didn't stop and they took breaks when it was raining or whatever it's not really a full court press
4: so and they did alert the airport as well there is a an airport in faro so they did do some of those things but of course, we don't know the time of them doing it. And we don't know how thorough and bearing in mind that a missing person inquiry is not a criminal investigation in Portugal. So it's at what point someone says, this is serious. We know there was no urgency and that would have been incredibly frustrating. But it's a, we don't know that specific timeline. But what I will say is that the timeline that was given in terms of what was going on with the Tapas 7 and Jerry and Kate, I have no confidence in whatsoever. And that's my own view. I just don't trust it. I don't have confidence in it. If they didn't have watches and they didn't have phones and they didn't know the times, and then they decided to put it together, um, together, and they to together.
3: It. And that's the critical part, you're right. I mean, what is wrong with these investigators? You don't put a group of people together that could contaminate each other's memories. You separate them. That's how law enforcement works. You individually question them, and then you find there are going to be inconsistencies from them, but these are the ways that you actually determine who's telling the truth and who's not. You know, if something is corroborated by seven people who didn't have a chance to actually get their, quote, stories together, then it, it adds to the credibility.
1: Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation, and 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com promo code WONDERY.
5: This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
1: So I kind of knew straight away
5: then that Madeline had been taken. It's not us that's committed this
4: crime. It's a person who's gone into that apartment and taken a little girl away from her family. So yes, maybe though, Jim, it wasn't the Portuguese police who um, they sat with doing that timeline. My interpretation, and it is an interpretation, so I just want to put that caveat on it, but looking, and I posted it on Twitter and on, on Instagram, but looking at it, it looks like they just put it together on their own. Right, Right. and the police weren't sat with them, and therefore they're trying to work out the timings. And then they alter it and they add things in. And of course, Jane Tanner adds in and adds in and adds in more as she goes along to the point that all this extraneous information to some looked highly suspicious. So we'll come back to Jane Tanner. But for me, one of the clear questions is when was Madeline last seen alive independently? Because if the timeline's wrong, we may be looking at the case completely wrong. It might not be that window of time where she goes missing between whether it's nine and ten. It could actually be earlier. There's no no one that tells us that Madeline was in bed. There's no one who can independently corroborate that. So when we go back to Kids Club, that she was in Kids Club that day, according to Ma- the Maddie podcast, um, it was somebody else who signed her out of the out of the Kids Club, which wasn't highly unusual in and of itself. But it just raises the question who independently saw her leaving Kids Club and the time windows that everybody's focusing on. And for me, that hasn't been bottomed out. And we can't just take it verbatim that the window of time is between 9 and 10 when she goes missing. Because the tappers at 7, perhaps they didn't get up as frequently as they said. Perhaps they didn't do those checks. And we have to entertain that point.
3: Right. And I'll just rely back on my memory from when Kathy Canning went to Portugal as a part of the behavioral analysis unit to help investigate this case. And talking to her when she returned, she pointed out a few of the red flags that, that in the behavior of Kate and Jerry, the risk elevation and so forth. But I remember one of the things that was really forefront on her mind was that given the last sightings and the behavior of the parents, she said she would just find it remarkably improbable that one or more of the parents had done something or discovered Maddie dead and then very calmly continued to go back to the tapas restaurant and interact with their friends in such a calm, cool, collected way. Generally, when we see a false allegation of child abduction, we see that there are a number of behaviors that the parents or guardians that make a false allegation because the child was either deliberately or accidentally killed. And their behavior typically is to sort of close ranks immediately and and then put the greatest amount of distance between them and the child as possible. And then if the child is not discovered immediately, then better the concealment method uh, that they had to quickly do. And so the reports and the theories and all the speculation about did they have Maddie's body all the way to the time to where, what is it, 20-something days later when they hired a a car, and then at that point dispose of her body, to me, that, that would be highly improbable. And I think that is what was conveyed to me by Kathy Canning, who was the profiler, the FBI profiler who actually went to Portugal to consult on this case. So there's a whole bunch of different layers to this. The analysis we're doing is very different than the analysis done on the Netflix series and also in the podcast Maddie, because we're actually looking at statistically driven behavior and analysis that they're just not doing. Like, for example, people saying, and us agreeing and for the most part, that it did elevate the risk to the child that they were leaving the children unattended in a foreign land, in an apartment setting, in a resort uh, 100 yards away where they didn't have a line of sight. That actually increased the risk that somebody might come in and take them. So if, for example, they took that choice only that night, in other words, if this was not their general behavior, then I would really say this is a red flag. Why on this night did they do this when all the other nights they did something different? But the fact is they had a pattern of behavior, which actually elevated the risk that this kind of abduction could take place. You see what I'm saying? If, mm-hmm. if it was a change in their behavior, then I would be pointing more at them. The fact that they continued this risky behavior every night actually elevated chances every time they did it, that somebody would see this and discover this and know that they're doing this as a pattern and would know that there was an opportunity at some point. So that actually, for me, points the needle in the other direction, outside the family. So that's just a a gross analysis of it. It's not going down into the, the nuances yet, but that's something that really makes a big impression with me. That this is something they kept doing And I think every night they did it, it increased the risk that somebody might come in and take her.
4: Right. But just as a counter to that is that we have to remember, you talked about better concealment. Well, she hasn't been found. And we also have to remember, and I'm just playing devil's advocate when we're talking about the macro big picture, is that Kate and Jerry were very polished on all of their press conferences right from day one. And that was really interesting to watch. But of course, we know that they had a press media advisor right from the start. And we're talking about Jerry, who was a surgeon, who I do think is a controlling individual. And I do believe that there are elements of coercive control and controlling the narrative. I can't help but see that because it is there. There's numerous examples and we can talk about that. But also when we talk about statistics, the way that we're approaching it, yes, we do have that in the background. But you and I both know there's the 1% of cases we've never seen before. The DC snipers, you know, Mohammed and Malvo you could say, well, normally sniper cases are a lone wolf type situation because of the type of offence. But of course, that wasn't what had been seen before. Right. And therefore, you had to think about the case in a different way. You know, the same with 9-11. So we always have to bear in mind, I remember Jeff Dunn, when I talked with him about the Rebecca Schaefer case and Robert Bardot, him basically saying, yes, it was a stalking case, but it was a fan, a fanatic, and he was a howler. who would write prolifically to her as a fan. And statistically Mm -hmm. speaking, someone like him would never make an approach. But that's cold comfort to the Schaefer. Right. Yeah, because he he broke the pattern. So I'm always very conscious of of those cases.
3: Well, we have, have so much more to talk about. This case has been going on for so long. There's so many different theories propounded with respect to this case. But many of those theories are wholly unsupported. And they remain simply theories we just don't know yet what happened to Madeleine McCann.
0: So until next time, thank you for listening to Real Crime Profile.
4: If you like our podcasts, there are a few things you can do. You can take two minutes and go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also check out all Real Crime Profile offers and promotions and our sponsors in our show notes. Another thing you can do is go to Facebook and like our Facebook page. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Real Crime Profile without the E. And one last thing, please tell your friends, family, and colleagues about us and spread the Real Crime Profile word. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate all of our listeners.
3: Real Crime Profile is produced and edited by Paul Francis Sullivan. Sound engineering by Mike Thal. Music is composed by Simba Tsumba. Logo art by Jim Clementi. Real Crime Profile is produced by XG Productions and distributed by Wondery.
4: For advice and support if you're experiencing stalking in the UK, you can contact Paladin National Stalking Advocacy Service on 0203 866 4107. Or you can go to the website where there's a lot of information and advice that you can follow on www.paladinservice.co.uk. If you're experiencing domestic abuse, you can call the National Domestic Violence Helpline for free on 0800 in the US, if you're experiencing domestic abuse and need advice, shelter or counselling, you can call Genesis, the 24-hour hotline, on 214-946-4357. You can also go to their website for further advice or support, www.genesisshelter.org. And there's the Domestic Violence Hotline on 800 799 Seven
3: two three three. Hey, Prime Members, you can listen to Real Crime Profile ad free on Amazon Music download the amazon music app today before you go tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey the wait is over
4: so far you're not losing the only thing you're losing is my patience
3: quickly i see that Bing! the queen of the courtroom is back i didn't do anything
4: you wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face i see he's not intimidated by anything I can fix that.
0: New cases.
4: She wanted to fight me? Leave her alone. OK, so. Um... Not. This is not a so. This is a period.
2: Classic Judy.
4: Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would
0: make a beeline for the door. The Emmy award-winning series returns. How did I know that I have a crystal ball in my head? It's an all-new season.
4: It's streaming. You can say anything. (laughs) Judy Justice,
3: only on Freebie.